A couple of weeks ago, we finished Matthew chapter 25, the Olivet Discourse. And for uh, these weeks between now and, and uh, December 31st, uh, we are looking at the Incarnation and thinking about the Incarnation. Our topic today, and, and by the way, let me say this. I really appreciate your prayers for me as I study. Topical sermons are hard. Preaching out of a passage is easy because when you get to the last verse, you're done. But when you preach a topic, you could go a long time. And I'm just OCD enough to not be sure if I've actually finished. So I appreciate your prayers over the next several weeks. Uh, the topic this morning is the need for the incarnation. The need for the incarnation. Uh, this will surprise some people, but the primary message of the Bible is not how we should live. The primary message of the Bible is the revelation of God's holiness and love. Next comes how we should have lived. And third is why we don't live that way. We should have lived in light of his holiness and love. We don't live that way because we're descendants of Adam. Because we have fallen nature, a sinful nature. His sin permanently altered the spiritual nature of mankind so that faith and obedience are impossible for us in our natural state. Holiness and love. God's holiness is revealed in a number of ways including his justice toward sinners. That justice is perfect and exact. This week I discovered a little book by a Scottish pastor named Edward Donnelly called Heaven and Hell. He writes this, The doctrine of hell confronts us with a God who is overwhelming in his anger, irresistible in his power, terrifying in his justice, a mighty sovereign who holds the earth between his fingers like a pinch of dust, Hell speaks to us of the God who is in control, doing with us as he pleases, the God whom we cannot ignore or marginalize or manipulate. And I would add to that, hell is God's God keeping his promises. In the day you eat of it, he said to Adam, you will surely die. That's a promise. We also see, though, God's love manifested toward sinners through the various expressions of his grace and mercy. By God's mercy, Adam and Eve were not destroyed the moment that they sinned. He could have rightly put them to death, but he chose not to do that. Instead, he, he used that as the basis for sending his own son as a savior and redeemer and the fulfillment of our salvation and redemption enters history with the incarnation. It's not completed with the incarnation, but it begins there. And so the roadmap for today's sermon, we're going to begin by getting clear about the nature and the will of God. Then we're going to talk about the nature and the will of man. And then we'll talk about how the incarnation of Jesus 
deals with the issue of our sin. Let's pray and and we will begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the massive scope of it. We thank you that throughout the scriptures, you reveal your holiness and your love. You revealed your holiness towards sinners in your justice, and you reveal your love towards sinners in your mercy. And we do give you thanks for that. Would you help us as we consider these things? Challenge our hearts and challenge our minds so that at the end of this, the thoughts that fill our minds and our hearts are what a blessed and mighty God we serve. We thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the nature and will of God, uh, we're not going to talk about the results of the fall twice, by the way. They might need to be talked about twice, but we're not going to talk about it twice. The nature of God, by nature, I mean uh, who God is and what he is like. And by will, I mean what God requires, what pleases him. God's nature is who God is and what he is like. When we say that God is holy, we don't simply mean that he chooses to act in holy ways. We we mean that he himself is holy. His actions and his person define holiness. All of us know 1 John 4, 8. Even if we don't know the verse by the reference, we know the words. Loved, let us love one another for love is of God. No, that's not it. And God is love, right? Never, never promise to quote a verse that you don't have notes on. That's, that's not a good idea. The point is, 1 John 4, 8 doesn't say that God is loving, although he is. It says that God is love. So when the Bible says that God is holy, it doesn't mean that he is merely someone who acts in holiness. It means that he is holiness itself. God doesn't merely act in righteous ways. He is righteousness in his character, in his nature. The attributes of God tell us what God is like, but more importantly, they tell us what God is. God's will is what God requires according to his good pleasure. God's will is what God always does. In the whole scope of eternity, there will never be the slightest microsecond when God does not do what pleases him to do. We have to reconcile the fallenness of of our world and the suffering of our lives and the things that we see with that. It's not impossible to do that. That's not the scope of the sermon this morning. But be reminded that no matter what has taken place in your life, what no matter no matters what has taken place around you or in the world at large, God is never out of control. He has a sovereign purpose for all things. So it pleased God to make all things as he did. When he created, he was not subject to the laws of physics. The laws of physics are really a description of what God did and what God made. He could have made things differently than he did. But he made them as he has. And so when we jump into water, we sink. When Jesus steps into water, he walks like it's a floor. 
There's no difference to him. He's God in human flesh. It was his good pleasure to walk on the water and not sink. And so the laws of physics simply had no hold on him. Now, by, by virtue of being the creator, by virtue of his nature and his will, God has the right and the authority to command. And he does command. When he revealed himself to Job, he asked Job some rhetorical questions that showed the difference between uh, the creature and the creator. And these questions have to do with his authority and his right to command. Job, by the way, had questioned God's decision making, can we say. He granted that God had the right to do what he wanted, but he insisted that God owed him an explanation. And God showed up, and in my my summary of those three chapters, God said, the only way for you to understand what I do is to be me. Let's find out if you're me. I'll ask, and you answer. And it's actually, it's actually kind of a pass-fail thing, which is easier. <laughs> so Job 38, 31 to 33 says, Can you bind the, the, uh, the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the statutes of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? God says, I manage constellations. Constellations, of course, are those pictures we make up in the sky made up of different stars. But keep in mind that some constellations, that star is not a star. It's a galaxy. So a constellation could be made up of, a, of millions of stars. And God said, I order them. I put them in place and they obey me. In the next chapter, he says to Job, is it at your command that the eagle goes on high and raises his nest high? What's the point there? The point is that God commands the constellations and he commands the eagle. And they're equally easy to him. He doesn't really wrestle to deal with the constellations. He just speaks, and he doesn't shout. He doesn't bellow. He just speaks. And he speaks to the eagle, and he speaks to the leaf, and he speaks to the sparrow. And it's all equal to him. Why does the universe function like it does? Because God made it to work that way. He determined how the the stars and the constellations and the galaxies would function. He determined where the eagle would build his nest. Nothing is hard for him. He speaks and it's done. When God exercises his right and authority to command, he exercises it over us too. He has the right to command us by virtue of being creator. He made us. We belong to him. We are not our own. Now, Christians, we know that. We are not our, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Speaking of the, the death of Jesus and the, the redemption he purchased for us. But before that, we were not our own because we were created. And we have an obligation to our creator because he is our creator. The standard that God uses when he commands is himself. His own nature. So he says to Moses... Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. He doesn't say to Israel, You should be holy like Moses. 
Holy Moses, don't, don't do that. You should be holy like Moses. You should be holy like Aaron. You should be holy like the top people in, in Israel. He says you should be holy like God is holy. Jesus repeats that in Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the nature and the will of God is a nature of holiness and love. And because of the fall of man, that holiness is expressed in justice and his love is expressed in mercy. What about the nature and the will of man? Well, before the fall, Adam's nature and will and Eve's, like everything else in creation, was very good. Very good. Everything about Adam and Eve was right and good. Their relationship with one another, as brief as it was before the fall, was very good. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, they were very good. Their relationship with God before the fall, as brief as that time was, was very good. They were made in the image of God. They perfectly, exactly reflected the image of God as he wished them to do. Nothing was lacking in them. There was nothing to complain about. Nothing that could have been just a little bit better. Nothing to tweak, nothing to polish. But then Adam sinned. He committed a single act of sin. By the way, it was an act of sin on something arbitrary. There was nothing inherently harmful about that fruit. The act of sin was the rebellion that said, no, I'll choose. And when he did that, he became a sinner. That nature and will, which had reflected the, perfect, the, the perfection and the perfect image of God, became deformed and twisted. Romans 3.23 tells us why, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I, I love it when a single statement like that gives us a word and its definition. The definition of sin is to fall short, to miss the target. That's literally what that Hebrew and Greek word mean. They're different words, Hebrew and Greek, but they both mean to fall short, to miss the target. <clears throat> Judges 20.16 uses it literally when it says, out of these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. So if you're left-handed, your choice. Out of all these people, 700, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, not sin, not fall short. God applies it to us spiritually and says, when you sin, you're falling short of my glory. You're falling short of the purpose for which I made you. God made Adam and Eve in his image so that they would reflect that image in everything that they did. When they sinned, they missed the mark of acting as God had created them to act, but they also fell in their nature. Adam's nature was, was contorted, was twisted. It became impure. It became unholy. God's good pleasure no longer constrained Adam. Instead, he followed his own desires. And in the process, Adam's will became enslaved to sin. Before he sinned, Adam had free will. There's no such thing as free will. I know people today will argue the point, theologians and philosophers and all kinds of people will argue the point that there's free will. There's no such thing. 
there really isn't any such thing. Let me explain that to you. Before Adam sinned, he could obey or disobey as he liked. But after he sinned, he could no longer obey. He became enslaved. If, if this image helps, you could imagine Adam standing on the edge of a bottomless pit. And while he stood on the edge of that bottomless pit, he was free to stand or to jump. But once he jumped into the pit and began to fall, he no longer had a choice about falling. He could no longer choose to stand. He had to fall. We are born falling. We have a fallen nature, but our nature is also a falling nature. No matter what word the Bible uses, and a lot of words are used, sin is always a violation of God's nature and will. So we fall short of the glory of God. We violate his holy nature. That's iniquity. We break his commandment. That's the the transgression. We trespass into areas that he is forbidden. As a result, then, we see that the The outcome of the fall is immediate and clear. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. You've got the cross references, by the way, in your notes. They knew that they were naked. They were filled with guilt and shame. They were driven to try to cover themselves up, and they chose fig leaves. They had been naked and unashamed. We don't think about that very often. In fact, I'll even, I'll even say this, and I, and I say so with a lot of delicacy for the little ears that are here, but when we think of naked and un, unashamed, we can't think of it without being ashamed. We can't think of being naked and unashamed without inserting shameful ideas. We're fallen. But suddenly they were driven by this impulse to conceal themselves from one another and from themselves. They tried to hide from God. They hear the sound of God walking in the garden and they jump in the bushes. Instead of running to him in confession and repentance, Father, I I did the thing. You told me not to do it and I did it. So what do I do now? Instead they hid. They just hid. They learn by experience what Hebrews 4.13 says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. What a terrible thing to live without self-consciousness, without guilt, without shame, and then to suddenly become aware of your sin. They thought that the bushes concealed them, but God knew exactly where they were the entire time. <clears throat> they go on to deny responsibility for your sin. Why were you hiding? Uh, I, was, uh, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, verse 10, chapter, uh, chapter 3 of Genesis says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And it's interesting that God doesn't say, oh, why were you afraid? He says, who told you? Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
Yes, Lord, that's exactly what I did. I'm so sorry. I wish I could undo it. No. Adam says, the, the woman, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate. Adam shifts the blame to Eve and he shifts the blame to God. Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You ever wondered how she knew she was deceived? She knew the truth. She just let go of it. She refused to stand on it and she believed something else instead. So God made Adam and Eve in his image. And for a time, I don't know if that was an hour, if it was a day, or if it was a week. I, we don't know. They lived according to that image. What a delight it would be to be free of sin, to be free of shame, to be free of the chains, to no longer be falling they had never experienced that. They had no idea what any of that language would even mean. God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And Adam says, I was afraid. And so perhaps what Adam meant was, I knew as soon as you laid eyes on me, you would kill me. But God does the unexpected Now, his, his nature is holy and perfect. All mankind is guilty of sin. All deserve death. God would have been completely justified had he slaughtered Adam and Eve on the spot. But he doesn't do that. He exercises mercy because he had a different purpose in mind. All of creation exists to display the glory of God. The holiness of God is displayed towards sinners in his justice. The mercy of God is displayed towards sinners in his mercy. Or, I'm sorry, the love of God is displayed towards sinners in his mercy. So God reveals himself now to Adam and Eve as he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. With Moses, he used words. With Adam and Eve, he used actions. He proved himself to be compassionate, gracious, patient, and abounding in loving kindness. And he shows himself by covering their nakedness with, with garments made of animal skin. They chose fig leaves. He chooses animal skin. Have you ever considered that the first death in creation, the first physical death in creation, was the death of the animal that substituted for theirs, their death? And that the purpose was to cover their sin. Well, there's a foreshadowing of the incarnation. It's exactly what Jesus would do. This animal didn't die as a natural consequence of the fall. It was put to death deliberately at the hands of God. And that innocent creature foreshadowed a, an infinitely greater and far more perfect substitute. So let's think about how the incarnation of the Son of God addresses our sins. God is holy 
and loving. He is just and he is merciful. Man is sinful. We're born falling into that bottomless pit. God warned Adam that sin would result in death. Every sin requires a death. That's the deal. That's the cost. That's just the penalty for our sins. I don't know the practices of any of the parents here. I, I really don't. When, when our kids were little, we knew people who had a shopping list on their refrigerator. Do you, do you understand what I mean? If you tell a lie, you get this swat. If you take a cookie without asking, you get three swats. You know, for a time, the kids look at that and go, oh, no, no. But eventually they go, okay, well, that's a deal. I'll take two swats for four cookies. Oh, you don't get more swats if you get more cookies. I'll get a dozen cookies, and then the two swats are really, you know, it's like inflation. It just, it, it all works. Well, we owe God our death. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But the death of an animal isn't sufficient. God killed that animal. Not as a substitute for their life, though. He, he refused to accept that death as payment for Adam's sin. A man sinned. A man had to die. And that man, obviously, from our point of view, is going to be Adam. The woman is going to be Eve. But God says, I will cover your sin until, until such a time as I, as I bring a, a permanent solution to it. Much later on, King David wrote in Psalm 51 about his sin with Bathsheba. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You were not pleased with burnt offering. David was king of Israel at the height of the practice of Judaism. The temple had not yet been built. It was the tabernacle, but faithful sacrifices are going on daily. And he understood that. He knew the law. It was commanded that kings write out their own copy of the law. And given the nature of David and what God says about him, I feel confident David did that. Others may not have, but I feel confident that David did that. He knew, but he also knew the law cannot take away my sin. It can only cover it. And I don't want to just be covered. I want to be free of it. I want to be forgiven. I want it taken away. I don't want God just to turn a blind eye for the moment. Because this thing inside of me is eating me up. It's devouring me. And I long for it to be gone. But the death of an animal won't do that. And so I I put my faith in Jesus. I put my faith in God to provide a savior. Ultimately, that's Jesus. The same issue continues on in scripture. Hebrews 10 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's Hebrews 10.4. But Hebrews 10.10 says, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all doesn't mean one person for all people. It means once for all time. One time. A single sacrifice covers and takes away the sins of all who would believe. Without exception. I really want to press this home. God's answer to sin was not fig leaves. God's answer to sin was not pretend it doesn't exist. God's answer to sin was not, here's a law, keep the law, and when you try, I'll give you credit for trying, and we'll just let the other thing go. God's answer for sin 
was to exercise his justice and his mercy simultaneously on his own son. Justice against our sin poured out on Christ. Justice against us poured out on Christ for the sake of mercy. And by the way, if it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, it's impossible for baptisms and confirmations and going forward at altar calls and raising your hand at Bible camp to take away sins. So God's answer was to send his own son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3, but without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Theologians sometimes call Jesus the second Adam, but the Bible never calls him the second Adam. It says he's the second man. It talks about the first man and the second man, never the second Adam. Jesus is called the last Adam. The second Adam says, well, there was a first Adam, there's a second Adam, so maybe there will be a third and a fourth and a fifth Adam. But when there's a last Adam, it's clear that there will no longer be another. Jesus did not come to displace Adam as the head of the fallen human race. Jesus came to be the head of a new, born-again, regenerated humanity. From the very beginning, God intended that his people would be made twice, created twice. First physically in the first Adam, and then spiritually In the last Adam, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah, I think 31 or 34, uh, contains the promises of the new covenant that says, I will give them one heart and give them uh, and give within them a new spirit. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? So that they may walk in my statutes, which we had never done. And keep my judgments and do them, which we had never done. And because he gives one heart, a new spirit, a heart of flesh, he says, then they will be my people and I will be my God. I will be their God. This idea is given to us again in the, in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's different words, but it's the same intention. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. It doesn't say if anyone is in Christ, he's the same old person, but we've polished him up. We've cleaned him. We've used a little bit of gunk off, and we've gotten the sticky stuff away. It, it says he's new, a new creation a new creature. All who are in Adam die. All who are in Adam die. The animal skins are just a temporary solution, but all who are in Christ will live forever because he lives forever and he died once for all to save those who belong to him. And so the son of God took on human flesh. He was incarnated, conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit and born in the usual way. He grew The last verse of Luke chapter 2 says that as he grew, he was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Would you think about that? The sinless son of God, as a little boy, grew into adulthood, growing in favor with God. It's not that he lacked favor with God. But as he grew into adulthood, everything he did pleased God. And as a historical reality, Jesus earned perfect righteousness. With the start of his public ministry, Jesus taught. 
He says in Mark chapter 1 that he came to preach and teach. He didn't come to work miracles. He came to preach and teach. He performed miracles that confirmed his identity. And all the while, his eyes are fixed on Jerusalem where he will suffer and die on the cross and be raised from the dead for the sins of many. He'll be resurrected. He'll be glorified as the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the dead. God killed the innocent animal in the garden to cover up Adam and Eve's sins, to provide a temporary covering. God put his son to death on the cross through the means of wicked men, yes, but Isaiah 53 says that God was pleased to crush him. God put his son to death on the cross to take away sins. God dressed Adam and Eve in the skins of that animal. That animal would have, that animal skins are going to, they're not going to last. I mean, God's, God's leather preparation skills were probably unparalleled. But they still had to be replaced. But he dresses us in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61 says, God has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. That's the righteousness that comes only through faith in Christ. The gift of righteousness that's given by the Father. And from the moment that in the garden when God killed that animal and dressed Adam and Eve in its skin, the death of the Son of God on behalf of sinful man was foreshadowed. After his resurrection, he, he caught up, Jesus caught up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus who didn't know that he'd been resurrected. They left just at sunrise when everything was happening at the garden. They're already out of town. And so he catches up with them. He asks, why are you downcast? And they say, where have you been? And they tell him what has happened. And he says, oh, slow of mind, foolish, slow to believe all that God has promised. And beginning with Moses, he explained to them everything in the Old Testament concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, Moses wrote Genesis. And don't you think Jesus said, I died there to cover their sins. That's a picture of of me. Noah and his family came into the ark. That's a picture of me. I preserve my people in the midst of judgment. The mercy shown to Abraham and and to Isaac and to Jacob and to the sons of Jacob and to Moses and, and David and all the way through are all pictures of Christ. He was born as a man, lived a holy life, died as a substitute for sinners, rose from the grave in victory over sin and death, ascended to heaven, and mediates for his people now for us without fail. And it begins in history with the incarnation. We need the incarnation. And we always have. Let me bring this home then. Before the end of the first century, false teachers and enemies of the faith were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. They were denying that he was God in human flesh. Gnosticism had no problem assigning Jesus some sort of deity, not the fullness of deity, we don't. The arguments over Jesus' divine nature came up a century or two later and were answered at the Council of Nicaea. But the first arguments were to say, no, he can't, be, he can't be fully human. He can't be truly human. Gnosticism was a, a Greek philosophy that, that listened to Christian language and then adopted the terms but provided different definitions. 
Gnostics believed that anything that is spiritual is good and right and holy and perfect, and that which is physical is imperfect and sinful and worthy only of destruction. And so it can't possibly be that God would have his son take on human flesh. That's what the Muslims today believe, by the way. That idea has not gone away. But God the Father sent his son to be born as a human being so that for the sins of man, a man would die. Jesus didn't give up any of his divine nature in the incarnation. We read in Hebrews 4, 15, and 16, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I don't know about you, but I need grace and mercy. I need grace and mercy, and there's only one source of grace and mercy, and that's the throne of God. But how can I get close to the throne of God? I can't get close enough to shout at the throne of God, much less to lay my hand on the side of it and plead for mercy. How can I do that? But the scripture says I can approach with confidence. Me, I can approach the throne of grace with confidence, with my sins, with my weaknesses, with my failures. And we just don't think anything about it because we're raised with some idea of these truths. And we lose the sense of how significant this is. I completely lack any merit that would allow me to even gaze at heaven. You remember the story Jesus told about the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee boldly stands and looks up into heaven and, and beats his chest in pride and says, look at me, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. And the tax collector won't come near and he won't lift his eyes. And he beats his chest in misery and shame and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he goes away justified. How can I draw near with confidence to the throne of grace? For that matter, how can you do that? We can do that because we have a high priest who has been tempted he never gave in to that temptation. He never, he never gave in to the sin. But Jesus can sympathize with, sympathize with my weaknesses because he was tempted. He can mediate for me before the Father's throne because he was without sin. This is important for those who don't know Christ. If, if they're tired of their sin and guilt, if they're tired of the hopelessness, if they're tired of being enslaved, if they're try, tired of trying to please God on their own, we can invite them to throw open their hands and surrender and say, I give up the fig leaves. I lay them down. They're not helping Jesus has already accomplished everything that they're trying to do. He's already obtained everything that they're longing to have. It's all there in him if they will turn to him. Turn away from their sins and look to him, which in that picture of falling into that bottomless pit, you've seen videos of skydivers who flip and tumble in the air and take positions. As we're falling as sinners into that bottomless pit, we're falling face down, and all we can see is darkness and hopelessness. But if we'll flip on our back, if we'll turn our back on our sin and repent, we see light, and we see the cross, 
This is also important for those of us who know Christ. We continue to sin. We continue to displease our God. We're saved by grace, and we stand in Christ by grace. He is not a a brutal, dismissive high priest. He's not proud. He's lowly and humble of heart. He's kind. He's gentle. And there at the Father's throne, he gives us rest for our souls. The devil wants us to believe a lie. His children in the world do as well, and and our pride wants us to believe this lie. And the lie is that once we're saved by grace, we grow by our efforts. We stand by our efforts. And that's a lie. We are saved by grace. That's justification. We grow by grace. That's sanctification. We will be perfected by grace. That's glorification. Now, good works have a place. They must have a place. But their place is confirming, not establishing. Good works don't make you a Christian. They confirm. And your good works will never be good enough. Your good works will never be flawless. They'll never be perfect. But they reveal growth. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I don't, I don't do this very often. <clears throat> but this would mean so much to me. I'm going to ask that you be willing to lay down the proud idea that you should be able to please God on your own. We all have it. There's always some element in ourselves that says, I've got to just pull myself up by my bootstraps and get it done. And we can't please him on our own. We please him when we trust him. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And in our times of desperation, when we feel guilty, when we feel ashamed, we are more likely to say, I've got to solve this problem, than to go to the Lord with empty hands and say, I've sinned again, and I feel filthy and shameful, and I ask you to cleanse me and take it away. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love for us. We give you thanks for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see from your word that it was not an arbitrary decision. It is the way that you design things. As certainly as you, dis- as, you, uh, as, you as you made light <coughs> to be a particle and a wave. As surely as you made gravity. As surely as... You keep the stars and the planets where they are as surely as you direct the eagle in its nest. You intended from before creation that your son would take on human flesh. It was not an arbitrary decision. By your design, the incarnation is absolutely necessary. And we thank you for it. Would you remind us of the grace by which we are saved? Lord, if there's anyone here who is in doubt, and certainly for the children who are are wrestling in various ways through their relationship with you, would you bring the reminder that salvation is not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done. Would you help us to turn our backs on the darkness and sin 
and look at Jesus, the empty cross and the empty tomb, and trust him. Help us, too, to take this message happily and boldly and clearly to those around us. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.